a playlist original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Smash potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me, the show about uprooting past and present Canadian popular culture. Hi, Liv. Hey, Kate. What are we talking about today? We're talking about Joni Mitchell. That's exciting. Um, I'm I'm saying it like I didn't know that. I have done my research for today's episode. I did prepare. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, Liv. Why are we talking about Joni Mitchell? I mean, that's a great question. I feel like she's somebody that is so celebrated in the music industry at large, but so many Canadians forget that she's Canadian. I do think she's a singular artist and songwriter um, who happens to be Canadian, who seems to be a proud Canadian as well. Uh, and, and I'm so For excited sure. to talk about her. I didn't really grow up listening to her. Let's let's be honest, Jenny Mitchell is a little bit before my time. Um but it's been, it's been so joyful. I mean, it's as joyful as it can be when you're listening to Joni Mitchell because you know, she's <laughs> cry. Yeah, sorry, it was the opposite of joyful. It was, <laughs> um, it was, it was a pleasure. Yeah, it was enriching. I feel like the majority of people, maybe who are our age, are introduced to her actually because of Love Actually. So, how is Joni Mitchell featured in Love Actually? Yeah, like I just remember that Emma Thompson's character gets the Joni Mitchell album for Christmas from her cheating husband. And that's when he, she figures out that he was cheating on her. Right. Right. Joni Mitchell was born Roberta Joan Anderson, November 7th, 1943 in Fort McLeod, Alberta. Uh, her mother Myrtle was a teacher. Her father, Bill um, was a grocer. She was an only child, a lonely child. I thought he was a, I thought he was in the um, Royal Canadian Air Force. As a flight lieutenant. Her father, Bill, was in the Maybe he was also a grocer. As a flight lieutenant. Uh, At the end of World War II, Joan and her family moved to North Battleford, Saskatchewan. Um, And then when they were not, when she was nine, they moved to Saskatoon, which Joan considers, which Joni now considers her hometown. I think Joni is our first Saskatchewan. I mean, everyone seems to talk about the fact that when she was nine, she started smoking. Everyone really talks about that a lot. So uh, that's kind of interesting. Obviously, um, less funny is that at the age of nine, she contracted polio. So she was hospitalized for weeks. And obviously, it's a really serious disease that can leave people um, absolutely debilitated. And during that time, her parents had to keep working. And so they couldn't be in the hospital with her. Um, and I think she talked about feeling quite isolated during that time. And, um, the only visit she had from her parents during the time that she was in the hospital was around Christmas when her mom came to deliver her a Christmas tree for her room. And, um, there is a line from the song river. It's coming on Christmas. They're cutting down trees. They're putting so I, I just like in my mind, that's like what, kind of what I pictured, even though I'm not exactly sure that that was the song, the, the moment that inspired that. Um, but it, it like it made me think of that song. And um, yeah, she uh, apparently that she just said to the doctor, you know, what do I have to do do to get home by Christmas? And the doctor said, well, you have to walk. And she said, OK, well, 
I'll be walking by Christmas. And she was, which is quite an amazing feat. Um, you know, can have really serious repercussions that are, are life-changing. And all that seemed to happen with her was that her left hand became weakened as a result. So, you know, she really walked away from the whole thing quite, um, you know, quite unscathed, which is pretty remarkable. Um, I think unscathed, like largely physically, but I think emotionally, physically, Liv, sure. I think you hit the head on it. And she has talked about this, that like the extreme isolation being in the hospital because, and you said this, but to be nine years old and to have her mother visit one time with a mask and her father never visit her. She talked about how she actually, she didn't, she no longer believed in God, but she played, but she actually prayed to the Christmas tree because she didn't know where else, what else to pray to. Like she was extremely isolated. It just makes sense that the, the parents couldn't be in the hospital with her because they had to be, they had to work, you know, they, and it doesn't sound like it was close to where she, her parent, her family was. For sure. We have, you know, we're no shade to the Andersons. Um, but but it would be really, really difficult to be that young and that isolated. I know the the boy next to her um, in the hospital died and uh, she did walk, as you said, but she was told at one point she would never walk again. Um, and facing all that while being so young, this is when she says that she started uh, performing and singing to other patients. And a lot of them told her to shut up, but she did. <laughs> and she really started... Um, she had taken some piano lessons before this, which didn't really stick because she had a really strict teacher she didn't really love, um, which I think is a lot of people's experience taking piano as a kid. But but she really started uh, kind of coming into her own as a young performer, or so she says, um, when she was in the hospital with polio. Even though I think we we learn kind of like as the story goes on that she may not be the, the most reliable narrator oh, of her own life. We can't take her word for no, it. <laughs> And I won't get into it too much, but um, David Yaffe wrote a great biography about her. So I draw in my notes a lot from from his work. Um, and, and he says that he purposely included really old interviews and old testimonials from Joni because she seems to have become quite a very, really quite jaded as she's aged. Um, and the stuff that she says about people now is very different than how she used to talk about people then. Um, so it does seem like she's really changed her relationship to these people, fame, everything has undergone a lot of change. So yeah, like sorting through this was, was quite a lot of contradictions often from Joni herself. I don't have much about her like teen years. I just have her art school. Yeah. I mean, she ultimately drops out of, um, school in grade 12. Um, she seems, and she does talk about a particular teacher and she was obviously not that into, uh, obviously that's unfair, but she, she was not that into school. Um, she was always seemed to be a little bit more creative and she does talk about one English teacher, um, who inspired her to start writing poetry and that she, um, that, you know, she really liked that. And she eventually went on to dedicate, um, an album to him later, and she drops out of school in grade 12, as I said, and um, gets involved with maybe not the best kids in town. And so she <laughs> distances herself from them and um, eventually ends up at art school. She enrolls in art school at the Alberta College of Art and Design in Calgary. She dreams of being a painter and she still paints. She painted throughout her whole career. Um and she was really interesting in an interview. I was listening to her, an interview, I think she, it was interviews from the seventies, but she talks about her relationship with music and painting being like crop rotation. Um, so when that she's has writer's block, 
she'll paint. And when she doesn't know what to paint, she's able to make music. And it's kind of got a beautiful, like the painting and the music for her have kind of a, a really cool symbiotic relationship. Um, so she's in art school. Pretty big thing happens in art school. She says uh, she was sick of being the last virgin in art school. She loses her virginity to a friend, Brad uh, McMath, who is nicknamed Moochie because he used to always show up around dinner time trying to score a meal. Um, and from this event, she becomes pregnant first time. Yeah. I'm, I, I, I don't know. I feel like I heard some contradiction, contradicting things on that point because it seems like she had this boyfriend in art school, but then she didn't get pregnant until she then, after she moved to Toronto when she was a little bit older, but I have heard people tell the story both ways. So I'm a little bit confused about when she got pregnant because I thought that the boyfriend was done. but it seems like maybe he came to visit her in Brad Toronto wasn't and a it happened. I Brad don't know. Was just a friend. Okay. And I don't know if it, if I think he was an art school friend though. And he, I don't right. know if he, they were in art school, but I know that it was him and she says it's him. And it's yeah. been consistent on, on that. Yeah. I think she's still, he's in her life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, or, or at least was at a point. Uh, and then Moochie moves in with her into an apartment in Toronto. He kind he grows restless. He leaves in the middle of the night while she's still pregnant. Um, and she ends up having to drop out of art school and she ends up, uh, putting her daughter, Kelly Dale, uh, up for adoption, realizing that she just can't afford to raise this child. So it's funny because I feel like I, like art seemed to be like her real passion at this point. And it seemed to me like she, she took, you know, she took a gig, um, singing at coffee shops. And the only real reason it seemed to me that she took the gig was to support her, um, career as an artist, that singing was just something that she did on the side. And I don't know that she really had an intention of making it like a full-time gig. So it's kind of funny. It was like, that's how it started. It was like, okay, I got to make some money. Like I, I guess I'll sing. Um, and then obviously she gained some traction as we'll get into. And interesting to note that, um, it's when she's pregnant and, and young and alone that she actually writes her first song. That this is what mm-hmm. she, this is kind of what awoken the songwriter in her. At least this is how, this is how she tells the story. And, um, I mean, I did think it makes sense that she's got these kind of darker moments of isolation that kind of spur her creativity, as was the case with the polio when she was nine. That was when she started performing. Uh, and when she becomes, shortly after she gets pregnant, she writes Day After Day, which is the first song um, that she wrote to completion. Uh, her song Little Green is also about um, about her pregnancy. Uh, and it does seem like for Joni, from what we can see, you know, some of her, her sorrow is kind of spurs her most creative uh, moments and most venerated work. For sure. And I think that it's also important to note that she didn't necessarily want to give up her daughter. She felt like she had to. And it did seem like she kind of made an effort to... Um, or she did want to get her back, so I heard. I kind of wondered if that's why when she met Chuck Mitchell that they got married so quickly because apparently he promised her that that he would help her raise the child. Um, but then after they got married, he wanted 
nothing to do with raising another man's child. And that was kind of the last time that Joni Mitchell saw her daughter, um, before, you know, leaving Toronto and going to, um, Chicago and then on to Detroit. I think it's maybe a good time to talk a little bit about Chuck Mitchell. Cause that does seem to have been a pretty important relationship in her life. And, um, he was a bit, quite a bit older and more, um, formally educated than her. She talks a lot and at length about how, how condescending he is. I should also say they played together, right? They, they were a duo for a time, but he, he condescends her all the time. And she writes, <laughs> she's actually written quite a few songs about this. Reflecting on her decision to leave Chuck, she said in an interview, if you make a good marriage, God bless you. If I make a bad marriage, become a philosopher. So I became a philosopher. And it does seem like the the way that her relationship with Chuck fell apart um, was kind of another moment that spurred creativity for her and certainly success for her because um, she actually left him right after releasing her first album. Well, don't you think that that was part of the catalyst of it too? Because maybe she was finding more success than he was. And maybe that there was a little bit of resentment there. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he didn't, you know, want to see that she had success. Let's get into her early albums, her folk period, but is it folk? Let's do all that. Early on in her career, she ends up in LA's folk rock scene. Um, But as she says, and, and uh, as other people who were, there at the time say she was also like kind of felt like she operated at the fringes like she was doing something very different and she certainly talks about kind of feeling like an outsider i think in part because she was a woman but in part because she says she found um other musicians to be very catty and competitive a lot of the time like she she seems to really have struggled with that even older interviews. I know I said she's gotten a lot more jaded lately and she talks a lot more shit lately, but even older interviews, she talks about how competitive and kind of shitty other musicians were to her. Um, and interestingly, she, during this period, a bit later on, she writes a song called Woodstock about, uh, Woodstock, which she actually wasn't at, which some people are surprised to hear. She was supposed to be there. She didn't get there. And, um, when she was reflecting on it and she was asked about it, she goes, well, it's good that I wasn't there because I wouldn't, I didn't have to see all the, the, the nastiness behind the scenes. Like she, and this was early on. So she really did struggle, I think with competition with other musicians, it seems. I think we would remiss not to mention that she dated um, two of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. She dated uh, David Crosby and Graham Nash at different times. Um, but David Crosby also uh, worked uh, with her as a producer. He produced her first album, Songs to a Seagull, in 1967. Uh, and David Crosby was on Howard Stern and said, She is arguably the best singer-songwriter of our times. I, I think she's as good a poet as Bob, and she's ten times the musician and singer that he is. I care about him, but the truth is she's much better as a musician and much better as a singer. And I don't get along with her that well anymore, but I, I, I do love her with my whole heart for what she gave us. You know, I don't think anybody did, did it as well 
This, they've been celebrating Blue because it's 50 years since she made it. I think that's arguably the best singer-songwriter record ever made. Much better than my stuff. Like, she's, she's somebody who is, like, she, you know, there is competition, but she is venerated by her peers. Like, she is um, just, like, really appreciated by them, clearly, because they can see, we'll get into this, but the musicianship, as well as her creativity and her unique lyrical style. Uh, there's also... And, and sorry, we should... Sorry, just on while we're talking about David Crosby, um, we sh- you know he, he was a producer on her first album, but she had t- so much control over that space and continued to have control really always, but especially in the early days of her career, it seemed that she was like ha- having a lot more control than normal artists, and um, yeah, and I think it's also true that she owns uh, the publishing rights to her entire catalog, which is like massive. And most big stars can't even say that. So, you know, she she obviously understood the way that the business worked and um, got ahead of it really early on, which I don't think that she gets enough credit for, honestly. And also maybe it's worth mentioning here because I'm not sure when it's going to come up again. That because of um, the aforementioned left hand problem that she had as, as a result of polio, she had difficulty playing the guitar. And so what she would do was she would um, kind of create her own tunings um, in order to make the songs basically work for her. And so as a result... Now, I'm not a guitar player, so I don't know this, but people who are musicians say her songs are very difficult to replicate because of that. Um, because basically in, if in every, any given concert, she's using like potentially a different tuning on each song, which is remarkable. And most people can't tune on the fly like that. I think it was Bob Dylan who said, and I may be misremembering who said it, that, that he needed like a quiet, dark room to tune his guitar and Joni Mitchell would be tuning her guitar in between songs while she was talking on stage. Um, so it was pretty remarkable and she certainly forged her own path, um, musically in that way. I I know this is kind of music geeky, but I I love the bit about the tunings and I, I do want to get into it. Um, people probably, I mean, music fans probably know and guitarists know that, um, you know, Keith Richards famously favors, um, tuning to open G um, which is like kind of just an idiosyncrasy of him and his style. Joni Mitchell, somebody counted, I think it was David Yaffe, the biographer counted like 62 different tunings that Joni Mitchell is able to play in and master. Like some of those that she kind of created that have never been used by other people. Like, I don't think that I, I quite before looking into her realized, um, you know, the caliber of musician she would have to, in guitar, she'd have to be, to be able to master that, um, and to understand that. And it impressive, more impressive still that she's completely self-taught. Um, and there's a, I think it was mama Cass had, a, I think like a backyard party, um, and Eric Clapton was there. And again, those who aren't music fans might not know that Eric Clapton is kind of a, a generational guitarist. We'll say he's widely considered probably the best guitarist or one of the best guitarists of his generation. Um, and there's a, there's a picture of him and people who were there say he was watching Joni Mitchell play guitar, just like with a completely open mouth, like just completely jaw dropped. Like, you know, that's how impressive she is, um, is my point. Um, she's, she is uh, a very impressive musician as well as um, 
somebody at, at one time who had three octaves of range in her voice. Now that's shrunk down a bit, likely probably due to the smoking. Is that fair to say, Liv? Does smoking affect your range like that? I've heard people say that, but they're not. <laughs> well, musicians. not according but to Joni. Music people who've said this. According to Joni Mitchell, her terrible habits, I'm using air quotes, her words, not mine, um, had no effect on her voice, but like, uh, just as someone who, um, you know, knows a little bit about vocal health, like it's, uh, it's just no doubt that it has, like, th- that's just what you do. You know, like uh, for example, I, I was in Greece and I had to smoke, um, Grease the musical, and I had to smoke <laughs> I was in the show. Mykonos, I'm going to be honest, like smoke. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and I had to smoke in the show, and I actually smoked. Make I think I smoked two cigarettes in the show, and it like over the course of time, like catches up with you really fast, especially on matinee days. And by the end of the run, like I was struggling to sing, and so I don't know how she started smoking when she was nine and sustained a whole career without honestly, like the fact that she can even like sing at all right now is pretty shocking especially especially still live because and that's what you find a point on it and i'm not criticizing someone for smoking but i just want people to understand like people say that she is like she is not just like smoking a couple a day like she's always has a cigarette in her hand yeah she did i watched an interview with he must not be named of q um and she's like she's clearly in her house and she's smoking the entire interview and it just looks it yeah. looks quite strange but but people who have interviewed her say like just the entire time they're talking to her she's she's just always smoking and i think to smoke that much and to be able to sing as she can at this age i think like I, from what i've heard her in the last few years i think it's still pretty impressive what she's able to do considering how For much sure. she and smoked like the- and how old she is yeah I mean, obviously the way that she's singing is very healthy and she's not like singing from her chest, which I think if, if she had been, it would have caught up with her faster. I think like she has, she has really good vocal health habits. Clearly like there's no other way this happens just unequivocally <laughs> or she's a freak. You know what I mean? Or she just like got a freak larynx and she can just, <laughs> just survive, you know, it's one or the other. <laughs> Have you ever had a craving for exotic snacks? Have you ever seen a foreign snack that you wanted to try so badly yet you didn't even know where to buy it? How about the fear of leaving your house to go get some delicious snacks? You, you know what I'm talking about. It's like you're in the middle of your movie and you just want the snack, but you don't want to go put on your shoes to go get it, right? Right. Admittedly, we've all been there, but we found the solution. Their name is In Out Snacks with a Z. They have all types of exotic snacks in their inventory, from Japanese Kit Kat to European candies to the crowd favorite, Dunkaroos. Oh, I love a Dunkaroo. Their prices are cheaper than most places you've heard of, and they deliver right to your doorstep. Get worldwide shipping on orders over $79. We've actually had a chance to sample the products, and we have to say, they were amazing. I had Dunkaroo, and it took me back to... Being on the playground. Yeah, middle school, for sure. It's a total blast from the past. So if you live in the greater Toronto area and you would like to satisfy your sweet tooth or surprise your family with some delicious ex- exotic snacks, maybe you want to recreate that moment in Norway when you had that amazing chocolate, we highly recommend in and out Snacks. They will go above and beyond to make sure that you are satisfied. So check out their Instagram at... In and Out Snacks with a Z, 
or their website, inandoutsnacks.com to place orders. We almost forgot the best part. If you're craving a particular snack that's not in their inventory, they will make it their mission to find it and get it to you. Isn't that oh, awesome? Amazing. At in and out Snacks with a Z. With a Z. For those who are interested, she also did date Graham Nash for quite a long time. She says he wanted uh, to marry her. She says she agreed originally prior to the Blue Album, uh, which we'll talk about next. And then... She just started thinking her grandmother was a frustrated poet and musician. She kicked the kitchen door off the hinges on the farm. (laughs) Um, And she says as much as she loved and cared for Graham, she thought, I'm going to end up like my grandmother kicking the door off the hinges. You know what I mean? It's like, I better not. I think next we have to talk about the Blue album. Blue came out in 1971. It's widely considered her I mean, critic, most critically acclaimed work, if not most commercially successful. Um, it's an album that's, quote, has served as the cornerstone of introspective singer-songwriting music since the 70s, um, which I have to agree with. In late July of this year, NPR published an, a list of the 150 greatest albums ever made by women. Blue was voted number one. Um, Blue was also the highest-ranking album uh, by a woman on Rolling Stones, 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, which came out in 2010, I believe. I think it's also really interesting that, you know, it's it's an album, like, of loss or longing for something, you know, and it seems like it's potentially a relationship or something like that. But, you know, it obviously all comes out that it's about the longing for her daughter, in a lot of ways. And I think that that's also interesting when you know that, and you can probably listen to it in a completely different lens after you know that, <laughs> or now maybe you're just going to listen to it under that lens. But, um, yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah. And I think it would be easy to assume that it's about men because it comes pretty soon after her breakup with Graham Nash and during a very intense, uh, I think a very d- intense period of her relationship with James Taylor. Um, and it is a little bit about that. Like the song, a case of you is about infatuation. Um, and it's clearly about a romantic love, but, but blue is largely her, um, you know, diving into, you know, the pain and loss of having to put her daughter up for adoption. And apparently when blue first came out, she recalls that men around her were really nervous for her and they were kind of cringing. They said it was too confessional. Yeah, she said, I felt like people were coming to watch me fall off a tightrope or something. Because it's, yeah, it's just like this was not, I mean, now I think that it's obviously much more common for people to put out such introspective albums and songs that are intensely personal. But certainly at this time it wasn't. And this was a pretty groundbreaking thing that now I think we totally take for granted. And to be the the first person to come out in this like intensely vulnerable way. Um must have been incredibly nerve-wracking. That's for sure. Especially since she had pushback from her male colleagues telling her, somebody said about the album, oh, Joni, say something for yourself. Like, you're sharing too much. Um, and, I, and I do think this is a good time to, to pause and talk about, um, like, Joni the poet. And it's funny because she actually says she doesn't care for poetry and she doesn't really identify as a poet. But, you know, when you listen to Joni Mitchell's music um like 
every time I listen to her music, I end up Googling the songs because I want to read it more closely because you can hear like it's it's, you know, poetry to music. It's she's it's deeply personal lyrics that just I don't know. They just hits different, I'll say. Mm -hmm. And I heard someone say that you have you have to kind of guard the space around which you listen to Joni Mitchell. You can't just like listen to her on speakers. You can't just listen to her like walking down the street. You have to kind of like create a space for it in your life. And I thought that that was pretty, that was a pretty apt, uh, <laughs> like thought. That's Zadie Smith in her, um, article in the New Yorker. The next album I want to talk about is court and spark, which comes out in 1974. Um, and this is, becomes more a bit more commercial um she has two top 10 singles help me and free man in paris off of this album um so i think it, i believe it was more commercially successful than blue at the time although i would argue that i would bet that blue is continuing to make money and people are still probably buying it on vinyl because it's kind of just it's again become the cornerstone for introspective singer songwriting um, but but Court and Spark is is the next in that era that's also quite um, commercially successful. I feel like Help Me from Court and Spark it may be her most um, in her career her most successful song. But I mean I don't know I don't know if that's true currently. I would say maybe Big Yellow Taxi has been the biggest moneymaker throughout her life. Big Yellow Taxi is like very, it's very current. It's very of the moment because it's, mm -hmm. I mean, people are using it as a kind of a climate change anthem. Um, I've heard it used totally. in contests, context. We've paved paradise, put up a parking lot. Yeah. It also just has really famous covers too. Next we get in 1975, the hissing of summer lawns, which, um, it's a bit more of a layered sound. If you listen to it, there's a bit more going on. Um, I mean, uh, instrumentally and it's a bit little, it's a little bit less confessional than the others. Uh, then, then I would say, yeah, Cord and spark blue, it's just, it's more social commentary. So part of the album is, um, it's like, it's a satire about a 1970s housewife. Um, so she's doing a little bit more social observation here, which was interesting for her. <laughs> Seems on brand. Well, and people, yeah, people also say that that was one of the reasons why this album wasn't as successful was because so much of what she was doing before was introspective. And I think it's, almost speaks to, you know, the public's desire to be voyeurs and, you know, cinema and in music. And, and now she was turning the tables back on the listener to, you know, potentially consider what they were doing in their lives. And, and I don't think people were as into that. That was certainly her, um, rationale for why it was less commercially successful. Yeah. Which is interesting because, you know, even where she's being confessional, she's still, like she's still weaving cultural and social commentary throughout, you know, in, in her earlier music, like she's saying something about when she's saying something about her own life, she's saying something about the world and society. Like, it's funny that people had that kind of reaction to this album when I, I do feel like Joni Mitchell has been 
she's been doing social observation throughout her whole career. Um, but maybe this was just a little bit more overt for people. So something interesting that I, I was reading about this is, you know, we kind of consider this Joni Mitchell's like folk period. Um, but there's lots of <laughs> people in the music world who point out that this really like this isn't really folk music and and for a time Joni Mitchell also resisted that characterization as well um but you know her first two albums we didn't talk about Cloud but um Songs for Seagulls the first album Clouds is the second one you know those songs don't use like folk chords they're actually full of fourths which is jazzy (laughs) um which we're getting to but you know the point being that you know Joni Mitchell has been kind of genre bending and just such a curious musician for for long and even when we're thinking about her folk period and she's certainly associated with um like she's often compared to dylan she's associated with csny um like she's kind of in that world but you know she's weaving her jazz in she's like miles davis is like her biggest inspiration in music um she's just such an an interesting musician but but that's kind of i think where we'll leave the folk period Joni starts getting kind of frustrated with popular music of the 1970s and 80s. She, as we talked about, she found the other folkies to be very ruthless. Um, And she's always had this interest in jazz. I think this might be a good time to talk, kind of to go a little controversial. So one of these, um, I think this is the first jazz fusion album, her 1977 album, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. The the album cover is Joni Mitchell in blackface. And, you know, I bring this up because I think it's relevant, but also because to to her. Um, but there's other kinds of things, too. She talks about um, feeling some sort of kinship with black men, a kind of misguided belief that led her to dress up in blackface at Halloween parties um, and later doing this again in Don Juan's reckless daughter she's also said some you know certainly problematic things about black men um in interviews and she she feels this sort of closeness to black men and you know i i have to highlight this because well i think it's wrong and we spent a lot of time kind of praising her as this like amazing person but i think this is a real you know misguided step from Joni and pretty unfortunate and I don't really think she's ever apologized or acknowledged that it was wrong I think that she just had a real misunderstanding to be honest of of what she was doing and why she was doing it I think it was never intended tended to be in bad faith certainly I think she meant it to be um to pay homage to um you know black jazz masters um but obviously it was was a moment of poor judgment but i certainly you know oh i think what's also interesting though is that one of the reasons why i think it didn't get as much blowback as it probably would have otherwise is because um it's unrecognizable that it's her on the album cover but people didn't realize it was her at the in the moment i think that just to the average person. And like, after having seen the cover, um, myself, it's not obvious that it's her at all, at all. So, um, I think that that's how this is kind of like escaped the public, public consciousness generally in the conversations that we're having about her, because I just, I, I think that probably largely people don't even know this still. 
so she married a bassist and sound engineer, Larry Klein. And, you know, this was probably one of her most successful relationships. They were together for 12 years, clearly one of, (laughs) one of her uh, better relationships. I, I, I feel like probably it was difficult for him to see her interacting with all the other male musicians who had so much fame that she was close with. Um, that seemed to be a problem in their marriage. And the fact that she was also probably so fiercely independent and been independent for so long, she probably didn't necessarily want to conform to, um, you know, just the role of wife, you know? So, um, they obviously eventually parted their ways and, you know, heartbreak, it's great inspiration for Joni. So again, inspiration struck during the divorce. (laughs) Uh, in recent years, Joni has has suffered from some health issues. Um, in 2015, she was found unconscious in her California home. She had a brain aneurysm. Um, the detail that haunted me was that she apparently she'd been lying unconscious for several days before she was found. But uh, you know, somewhat miraculously, she's made a full recovery. She's she's done really well since, which mm-hmm. is great. She's incredibly resilient. Yeah, you know, God. not just. Not just emotionally, but like she's really physically. Resilient. Like she's she's an iron she woman. She is an iron woman. She is the iron woman. Okay, before we go to like to legacy, what's the the best part of this story? Yeah, I feel like she has a full circle moment um, in the early nineties when it comes out publicly. One of her friends from art school who knew uh, that she had been pregnant earlier on in her life sold the story to the media that she had this daughter, which is just like terrible, terrible friend. Um, but it eventually comes, comes out. And I think, you know, Joni's in a place in her career and in her life where she's comfortable with the story being out. So she makes no efforts to, um, conceal it. And as part of the terms of the initial adoption, she couldn't, you know, contact her daughter. And so she didn't know where she was. She didn't know, um, you know, anything about her. And, but it turned out that her daughter had actually been looking for her. She knew that she was adopted. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how they connected, but through the story coming out and, um, also her own independent search, they come together and, um, and get to know each other. So that's a really positive thing for her. And Joni says that, you know, all that time, so much of my writing was, was about that longing and that loss. And then when I met her, um, and finally was reconnected with her. I didn't feel like I had to keep writing anymore. It was like that, that was, that was the whole point of what I was, what I was doing with my career and it all led up to that moment. So I thought that was kind of beautiful. Okay, Olivia, I don't think there's any other place to go aside from trying our, trying our darndest to, to put a bow on this and talk about, you know, Joni's legacy as an artist, as a Canadian songstress. Um, I have a bunch of testimonials from other musicians of the time, which I think are, are kind of funny, just in guys kind of go to how, um, just how adored she was. Prince was famously one of her most devoted fans and he wrote her fan mail as a teenager. I think that's so cute. Um, Jimi Hendrix in his private journals called her a fantastic girl with heaven words uh, Jimmy Page has gone on record saying that her music makes him weep. 
But but for you, what sets Joni apart, if anything? Maybe maybe you're going to reveal you don't like her at all. But um, you know what sets her apart as an artist in your mind? Well, I think you know we sort of touched on this before, but just how. Um, she was really willing to put herself out there and be so vulnerable. And I think it kind of did inspire so many more artists who came after her to do the same. What about you? Okay. Yeah. I think, I think that the poetry of her lyrics, the deeply personal nature is, um, you know, she's like, she is, um, the pinnacle of like the song singer songwriter bearing your soul. Um, she, she's at least the, she was like the, the first most famous version of that. Um, I think that's probably partly why she's like, she's kind of seen as being so, so impactful, even though, you know, her music was not at the time, at least was not so commercially successful. Um, but it's great. I think her the musicianship too, again, I, I, I want to harp on this because I, I think it's something that's under, under discussed about her that, you know, to be self-taught and <laughs> have taught yourself 62 different tunings. And I don't know if this is too much tuning stuff, but you know, like a new tuning is not like tuning your guitar. So it's in tune. Like you're tuning it to different, to different notes. It, it takes more than a few seconds. Like some people can tune their guitar in like 30 seconds, like to tune your guitar to different tuning is a whole other thing. Um, and then to be able to master that is, is something else. And I just think she, she, she also plays her instruments really well. Um, and I think that's why we're still talking about her as, and she's so ubiquitous, uh, in the culture and, and music. She's someone who I think that more people should cover. I know that she's very difficult to cover because of all the things they just said, um, but I think that I would like to see her music get revived time and time again, because I think that in, like you alluded to with uh, big yellow taxi, like some of, some of the stuff is even maybe more relevant in 2021 uh, than it was in the eighties, which is or sixties or seventies or whatever um, for, for a host of different reasons. But I think it's really interesting. And so many, not very many artists can say that about their music. Agreed. Yeah. She's the best. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say one more thing about her. Oh yeah. And she also lives in Canada, which is really cool. And she has a house in Canada and she, um, she said LA is my workplace, but BC is my heartbeat. So that was kind of nice. And we like, we like Canadians who like Canada. That's always exciting for us that they just don't go to the States and completely disown us. <laughs> If you want to keep up with us in between episodes, you can follow us at Just Watch Me Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Send us your thoughts and feelings about the show at Just Watch Me Podcast at gmail.com. And it really helps us if you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. See you next week. <laughs>